Well, good morning and welcome again to River Oaks. We're delighted to have you with us today. Welcome also to those of you joining us online this morning. This is the season when we celebrate the advent of Jesus Christ, his coming to the earth. In this Advent season, we're looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Not a typical Advent passage. Typically during Advent, we look at passages like Matthew chapter 1 or, or Luke chapter 1. But this year we're looking at the Gospel of John, and John the Apostle gives us a, a beautiful picture of the coming of, Son of the Son of God into the world. Today I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You'll see the verses overhead on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me was before me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Apostle John points out, first of all, that Jesus, the Son of God, has always existed. He's always existed, as we see in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, was in the beginning with the Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's important for us to grasp that Jesus has always been. He was at no time created. Uh, before anything existed, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, our triune God, one God existing eternally is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've always been. Furthermore, John tells us he was with God and was God, as we see in the same verse. This is one of many verses in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, that emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was God as the Father is God, so Jesus the Son is God, so the Holy Spirit is God. The concept of the Trinity certainly is one of the most challenging uh, theological realities of Scripture to understand. 
but it's critically, critically, critically important. And evidence for the Trinity is seen throughout the New Testament. Just in the Gospel of John, later in uh, John chapter 8, Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am, taking the divine name for himself, I am. After his resurrection, he appears to his disciples and the one we call Doubting Thomas because he said, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and the hole in his side, I won't believe. He appears to Thomas and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped throughout his ministry saying, if these don't worship me, the rocks and trees will even cry out. And every good Jew know that only God only God was to be worshipped, yet Jesus readily accepted worship. If you need help understanding the Trinity, we prepared a little booklet called Understanding the Trinity. It's free. It's at a resource center. It's on our website. I urge you because understanding the Trinity is critical to really appreciating the message of the gospel. You'll note in your bulletin today, we've also got a, an evening class coming up in uh, January on two consecutive Tuesday nights, the 9th and 16th, taught by Dr. Paul Biggers on our triune God. I think that'll give you a better understanding of the Trinity as well. But Jesus has always existed. He was with God and was God, as John says. Furthermore, all things were made through him. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made, everything was created through the Son. If you read the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the, the book of Hebrews begins in a similar way to the Gospel of John when the writer speaks of the Son of God through whom God the Father created everything. Because He the Son is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus always existed was with God and was God. All things were made through him. And then John leads us to this beautiful truth that we celebrate today about Jesus becoming human. The word became flesh. He became a human being and he dwelt among us. This is what we call the incarnation. Jesus, who was God, fully God, as much God as the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus, fully God, became fully man, born of the Virgin Mary as a dependent, infant, child. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. It's critically important to understand who Jesus was, or you can't really appreciate what he's done for us. It would have been one thing if a, if, if a good person or, or a prophet might be willing to die for us, would have been one thing if maybe an angel would have been willing to die for us, but it's completely another thing. If our Creator, the Judge of all, the one who has always been, God the Son, the Son of God, would take human form upon Himself and come to die for us to bring us to Himself. In early Christian history, this foundational belief in the deity of Jesus was challenged by a man named Arius. And in the 300s A.D., Christian churches gathered and put together something called the Nicene Creed, one of the oldest creeds in Christian history. This creed has been accepted by all three major branches of Christianity, 
the Protestant Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the creed was set forth to confirm the nature of uh, God as triune, and specifically the Son of God as being God. The creed begins this way, we believe in one God. You know, some people accuse Christians of believing in three gods. I don't know if you've ever, anyone's ever said that to you before. They'll say, you Christians believe in three gods. No, Christians are monotheists. We're monotheistic. That is, we believe in one God, only one God. But this God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate, which means in flesh, incarnate, took human flesh upon himself, became a human. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. That's not the whole creed. That's just the start of it. The creed goes on to speak of the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and with the Son is to be worshipped and glorified, our triune God. Jesus, the Son of God, becoming man, is called the Incarnation. And this is what the Advent is really all about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Later, Paul would say it this way, even though he, Christ, was in the form of God, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Like belief in the deity of Jesus, that he really was and is God, Belief in the incarnation, that fully God, Christ, became fully human, is essential to the human, uh, to the Christian faith. You may have noticed uh, we sang a beautiful Christmas hymn a little bit earlier, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, kind of in a little more modern tempo. Uh, Wonderful job our worship team did on that. I thought, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love that song because the words are so rich and filled with biblical teaching and theology. That's why many of these Christmas hymns have endured throughout the centuries. This particular hymn, note note the words we sang earlier. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The Godhead is a reference to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Veiled now in flesh, God came in a human body, Jesus, Hail the incarnate, in flesh, deity, Jesus, God become man, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, Emmanuel meaning God with us. Aren't these remarkable words? It's as if they come right out of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. By the way, 
uh, th this, this beautiful hymn was written by a man named Charles Wesley. What an interesting man Charles Wesley was. He lived in the 1700s, English, the Church of England. He and his brother John Wesley were ministers of the gospel in the Church of England and associates of one of the most, perhaps the most famous evangelist that has ever lived, a man named George Whitfield, who probably preached face-to-face -to, -face to more people than anyone up to that time in, in history. And uh, John Wesley is well-known, associated with the founding of Wesleyan Methodist churches. His brother Charles, not, not so well-known, but Charles was a hymn writer. And after his conversion, he immediately began writing these hymns, like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, that great hymn. Christ the Lord is risen today, that great hymn. You know, we'd say a person was pretty gifted if you write three hymns like that. Can you imagine a person writing a thousand hymns? Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns, 6,000 hymns. He, um, he traveled constantly on horseback. He was an incredible worker. His mind was being flooded with songs, and often when traveling along on horseback, he would stop and run into the nearest house and ask if he could have pen and ink to write something down. Charles Wesley insisted that no one ever changed the words of any of his hymns. And we can see why. I mean, they're so good. They're so rich in Scripture. But one friend, and we can be thankful for this, did bring about an important wording change in the song we sang today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Because when Charles Wesley wrote this song, here's, here, was, here was its title, Hark how all the welkin rings. Does anybody know what welkin means today? It's an old English word that means the vault of heaven. It passed away a long time ago. <laughs> but words out of the Bible like sing and angels, these are with us forever. So George Whitfield recommended this change, hark the herald angels sing. And thanks to him, we still sing that hymn today. It's a pretty good one. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. I'd like to talk for just a few minutes this morning about the incarnation. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Why was the incarnation necessary? Why was it necessary that the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Why was it necessary that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, become a human being? Several reasons. Number one, so he could show us the Father. As John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, simply look at Jesus. Later, Philip would say to Christ, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus has made the Father known to us. In Christ, we can see what God the Father is like. Many people struggle with their concept of God. Uh, some wrongly see a great difference between the God of the Old Testament and Christ of the New Testament. But that simply reflects a lack of understanding of the unity of Scripture and of the unchanging nature of God. The holiness, the justice, the wrath of God, the holy wrath of God that we, we see in God the Father is equally present in Christ. The, the mercy, the kindness, the love that we see so clearly in Jesus is equally present in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There is no conflict in the Godhead. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus came to show us the Father. Why was the incarnation necessary secondly? So he could be our example. If Jesus had not come to earth, we wouldn't have the benefit of his perfect example, his perfect life. Now, he was sinless, and we are not. But those of us who've received his salvation are called to follow in his steps. When he washed the feet of his disciples, he said, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. That's why Paul, the apostle, called Christians to, to follow or imitate him as he followed or imitated Christ. And it's why Peter said, for to this you've been called but Christ, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We seek to walk in his steps because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have the beauty of his example. Thirdly, why was the incarnation necessary? So he could experience what we experience. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 is, is calling us to pray with confidence, calling us to pray boldly. And here's the reason he gives for boldness in prayer. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, remarkable words, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's he saying? He's saying just like a high priest represented the people before God in the Old Testament, so we have a great high priest. High priest who represents us before the Father's throne when we pray. And this high priest because he's lived among us. He's faced the temptations we have faced. And he is actually able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's remarkable to me. He never sinned. And yet, he walked in our steps on this earth. He faced what we faced. Yes, he was tempted, yet without sin. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful to know very grateful to know that he sympathizes with my human weakness. Fourth, and by far most importantly, why was the incarnation necessary? So he could die for us. So he could die in our place. This, I believe, is the foremost, primary, 
reason for the incarnation, for God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming a human being. The writer of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children is a reference to those of us who, who know him, believers. It's the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because we're flesh and blood. In order to die in our place, to bear our judgment, to pay our price, to redeem us, to ransom us, he himself partook of the same he became flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say it this way, a few chapters later, chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those Old Testament sacrifices, providing a temporary atonement that God might dwell among his people, pointed to something greater than themselves. For they themselves could not take away sins. Something greater was needed to pay the judgment for all time, for all who would come to God through faith in God the Son. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. A body. Christ would come in a human body, like us, the sinless Son of God. He'd come the writer goes on to say, to do your will, O God. It was the will of God that Christ would come and take our place and bear our judgment. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. God had known, God the Son, Jesus had known that this was his design, this was his plan, the prophet Isaiah had said this hundreds of years before, roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53, where we read these words. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took our place, the Son of God. God, the creator of all, the Son of God who was in the beginning with the Father, who himself was God, through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that has been made became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator of all, the judge of all, became as one of us to pay our debt, to pay our price. And those who put their faith in Jesus are gifts from the Father to the Son. Do you know that if you're a believer, if you've accepted Jesus, that the Bible says of you that you are a gift from the Father to the Son? We often think of Jesus as God's gift to us. You ever thought of yourself as God's gift to Jesus? If you read John chapter 17, 
I think there are six references in that chapter where Jesus praying to the Father refers to believers as those whom you have given me, those whom you have given me, those whom you have given me. I expect some of us here who know Jesus, who are believers, need to grasp the reality of what it means to understand yourself as truly loved by God and given as a gift to the Son. It's part of His eternal inheritance, that for which He gave His life. You ever thought about yourself that way as a believer? Three questions I'd like to raise by way of personal application before we close this morning. The first is this. Am I sure that I've received what Jesus came to provide for me? Becoming a Christian is a definite decision to recognize our sin and our need for forgiveness and to turn in faith to the one who provided that forgiveness in his dying on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. It's humbling ourselves before him, repenting of sin and placing our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation, recognizing that we cannot earn, deserve, merit in any way salvation by our own good deeds, good works, or good intentions, but putting our faith in him alone. Be sure you've done that. Secondly, am I basing my knowledge of God on who Jesus has revealed him to be? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John said he, he came to make the Father known to us. We don't base our knowledge of what God is like, who he is. We shouldn't at least on our past experiences, uh, the relationship we had with our earthly fathers. All those, those things are significant. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thirdly, am I praying with confidence? Praying with confidence because of my trust in who Jesus is for me. Wouldn't you pray? Think about who's representing you. When we pray, in the name of Jesus, we're not uttering a, a magic formula, uh, magic words of some type, as if your prayer's not going to be answered if you don't say the words. We're simply acknowledging and recognizing we're coming to the Father on the basis of who Jesus is. His name simply represents who he is. And Hebrews tells us he's our great high priest who represents us there. And we can pray confidently when we have need because he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I'm so glad for that. I don't know about you, but I'm very glad he can sympathize with my weaknesses as a person of prayer. Would you join me as we pray now? Father, we thank you for your holy presence in this room. We, we sense and we know that you are with us. And I pray for your people. Pray for the comforting, consoling assurance of the Holy Spirit for all who know you. I pray for any who do not know you, 
Lord, for the awakening to the reality of the need to place faith in you alone. Father, I also want to pray today for those who in this season are grieving, that you would show yourself to be the great comforter who comforts us in all our affliction and suffering. I pray for those who need direction in this season, that you show yourself to be the great shepherd of the sheep. I pray for those in need of your healing, of body or soul, that you show yourself to be the great physician. And we thank you for all you've done for us and all you are for us. We give you praise. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen.